going to begin our service. I often start the service with, with songs which are kind of general, welcoming type songs, kind of getting, getting us all together. But this morning, the songs that I've chosen to start off with are very, very focused. They're focused on the essential part of why we're here. They're focused on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing together, first of all, Hallelujah, my Father, for giving us your Son, sending him into the world to be given up for man. Father God, that's it. That's the reason why we're here. That you so loved the world, not just the world, but us here in this room. That you gave your one and only Son, not just any Son, our Lord Jesus, who led, led a life of pure kindness, pure love, pure giving, and yet went through a brutal, tortuous death. That's the reason why we're here, Father. Thank you for the power and the purity of your gift, and help us to remember it not just this morning in our lives. Amen. In a moment, first of all, we're going to do our care news, and then we're going to pray together. And I'm going to say it's like we always do. We always do some kind of announcements, and then we have a prayer together. But I'd like us to really kind of dwell on the fact, the importance of us sitting here together, praying together about each other, about our family, about our friends. And for those of you who are kind of under a certain age, and usually this is the point where you get your phones out and play a game or get stuck into a book, I'd really appreciate it if this time you put your phones down, close the book, and join in with a prayer. Because we're going to have a, I'm going to introduce the prayer, and then we're going to have a time of silence where each individual can bring to God what's on their heart. But it's important that we do that as a family, not just someone from the front, not just the older people, not just the committed people, but as a family, we pray for each other. Because it's probably the most important thing we can do. And it, it changes us, it leads us into actions, it leads us into doing things with, with our hands and our mouths and our heads that can make a difference to people's lives. But it starts with the conversation that we each have with God as individuals and as a family. And we're going to take a reading now, and the reading is Jesus going rogue. I've no idea what possessed him to tell the story, which we're going to read now. And uh, Chris is going to read it for us. It's uh, from Luke chapter 16, and it's verses 19 through to 31. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip 
of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let them warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So that is a totally left-field story from Jesus. It's not the script we're used to him sticking to. Where did that come from? Why did he spin that yarn? Actually, as we'll find out, it's not his yarn that he spun. It's someone else's. But what it does tell us is something about Jesus' priorities. And priorities are important. Let me give you an example. This is a true story from the International Space Station. Okay, a few years back. So you've got to pitch the scene of the International Space Station. Through one window, you've got the entire globe of Earth, illuminated by the sun, every type of shade of blue and green. Wow. Through the other window, you've got the Milky Way drifting past. Okay, so it's pretty spectacular. And an an argument broke out between the American astronauts and the Russian cosmonauts as to whether the Russians should be allowed to use the American toilet on the International Space Station. What does that tell you about priorities? We can get them really skewed. A week or two ago, I was um, having a, running a session with some young dentists about careers and things like that. And it came to my, my mind a book which I'd read years and years ago, which some of you may have read, called um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And there was one particular example which he uses to get you to think, which, really, which I used with them, and I think they found helpful. He tells you to picture a funeral. And it's not just any old funeral, it's yours. And there's four speakers at that funeral. There's someone from your family, there's someone from your friendship group, there's someone from your workplace, and there's someone from your religious organization. And he says to you, you have to write the eulogy that each one of those is going to say about you. And you write what you want people to say about you from all those different groups, and that tells you what your priorities are. So that everything you should do from here on in should be towards that end goal. That's what's really important with you. So anything that doesn't figure in that is kind of irrelevant. It's important to think about priorities for ourselves as individuals and as a church as to what's important, what should we stick to, what should we emphasize, and what should we we let go as not being uh, that important. And in this particular moment, what burned Jesus up was the way that the rich people, the people in power and influence were treating those who had nothing, who were vulnerable, who were weak, 
and, and in need of help. That was Jesus' priority. That was number one. And that's why he used this story um, to, to elaborate on that. So we're going to do a bit of detective work because there's a lot to this story that um, doesn't necessarily meet the eye first of all. But as we do that, as we delve into it, what we shouldn't do is lose sight of that priority. What is Jesus primarily interested in in this moment? And what does that tell us about what our priority should be as individuals and as a church? And you might be tempted to think, well, I'm not called Lazarus and I'm not a beggar. And also, I don't live in a palace, and I don't uh, dress in fine linen, etc. So actually, this story is not for me, thanks. Uh, nothing for me here. But that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is not to look for the loopholes, but to see what the message is and to apply it to our lives. And you can apply this teaching to any situation where you have influence. So that could well be in your family setup. You have influence, you might exert power in your family, and this is relevant to you. We all have relationships with one another and other people, and we can use those relationships to exert influence, emotional influence and power. The place where you order a coffee from, the way you treat the person who serves you the coffee. There's loads of different places where we are, whether we like it or not, in a position of power and influence. The way we consume things. Here's another example. We've got a great phone shop in Ermston. I know it's a really good phone. I can recommend it to anyone. I know it's really good because one day I went in there a few years ago and I said, uh, my phone's not charging properly. It needs a new charging point. Uh, I hand it in. He, he looked at it and he got a pair of tweezers and he pulled out a bit of pocket fluff from the charger. Blew it away and said, I think that'll be fine now. <laughs> and I know he could have taken that off me, said he'd done some kind of electro wizardry, charged me 60 pounds and given it back. But he was very honest. He didn't want any money for it. Just said, don't be an idiot. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I went in because my phone screen had broken for the 18th time after dropping it. And he was laughing at me. He said, why have you got this old phone? Why have you got this ancient phone in still? And I said, well, it's a valuable resource, isn't it? And I know that in this tired old phone, there's silver, gold, cobalt, precious resources of the earth. That If I just treat it as a disposable change-every-year object... I'm not exerting the power that I have in the way I consume in a, in a Christian way. But back to the story. Some, some con, uh, context is very helpful. And if you just go back to verse 13. So Jesus just told another story. And he ends it by saying this. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other... Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So that's, the, that's what's going through Jesus' mind as he launches into this crazy story. Now, there are in this story two main characters. There's a man who's dressed in purple, and there's a man called Lazarus. And the first person, the, the rich man living in a palace dressed in purple, would be instantly recognizable to everyone who heard that story. It would be like me saying to you now, oh, I'm thinking of someone, they're a female, they live in a palace in London, they wear a crown, Okay. 
Go on then, indulge me. Who was it? The Queen, thank you very much. Yes, yes. So in this situation, they would have been thinking straight away about the high priest. There's there's no one else who that description would fit to. And what about this other guy, this guy called Lazarus? Could it be that this is the Lazarus of that Jesus raised from the dead? Well, I think it might be. Let's do a little bit of detective work. First of all, go to John in chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to read the first three verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and an an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So you have this lovely moment in Bethany where Jesus is anointed with this very expensive perfume. And there, right in the thick of it, is Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, it says. If you now go to Matthew for a parallel account of this, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 6, you can tell it's the same story here. While Jesus was in Bethany, he was at the home of a man known as Simon the leper. And a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So that's interesting. It's the same story, but instead of Lazarus, it talks about Simon the leper. So that could mean that they're one and the same person. It's not unusual for people to have two names, Simon Peter, for example. So Simon, it could be Simon Lazarus, and this is this very same person, and he was a leper. Or it could be that... They were two different people, part of the same household, and so Lazarus was associated with the condition of of leprosy. It's too much of a coincidence for me to think that the Lazarus in the story which we're, we're thinking about is not supposed to be, in our minds, the same Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. And that makes sense as, as, as we go through the story. So if you go back to chapter, of Luke chapter 16... And it says, there was a rich man in verse 19 who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. So that's our high priest. And at his gate was laid laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his open wounds, licked his sores. So the high priest living in luxury and right outside his gate Here's a man who, doesn't, who can't even lift himself to stop dogs licking at his open wounds, such as his poverty and his need. Probably the high priest would trip over him every time he left his house and went through the gate. Then it goes a little bit gaga from our perspective. <laughs> this is where Jesus goes rogue from, from what used to be in his normal message. Verse 22, it says, This time... So the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire." 
And it's a very stark contrast. Every day this rich man looked out of his window and looked past this man in his suffering at his gate. And now the roles are reversed. The Lazarus is taken to paradise at Abraham's side and the rich man is in, is in hell and he's in torment. He's just desperate for Lazarus to take the sting out of it by dipping his finger. Well, where on earth does that story come from? Well, it, was a, it came from a Jewish myth that was prominent at the time. It's exactly the kind of things that people believed at the time. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the Jewish um, book of Maccabees, an apocryphal book, it says, After our death in this fashion, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will receive us, and all our forefathers will praise us. So they had this idea that they would die and be received um, by Abraham and and the patriarchs. And of course, as a high priest... Well, the road was just open, wasn't it? It was a wide motorway from life to death, and uh, it was obvious that that's where he was going to go. And the picture of Hades, similarly, this is a a quote from the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. It talks about the lead character and says, You have escaped from the abyss and Hades, and you will cross over the crossing place and, and run to all the righteous ones, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Elijah, and David. So Zephaniah has this picture of the fiery hell, but the fact that you could cross over between one and the other if you are permitted. So Jesus is taking the Pharisees' own myth and legend and subverting it. He's taking what they took for granted and turning it upside down. And what he's saying is, actually, the details of the afterlife are irrelevant if you behave in this way now. That's Jesus' priority. He's not correcting the doctrinal error. He kind of undermines it by twisting it, but he's not flat out correcting that. What he's bothered about is the way the rich are treating the poor in this life. And actually he's saying that that dictates what's going to happen to you in the next life. Verse 24 says, So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor anyone cross from here to us. So if you remember that quote I read from the book of Zephaniah, which which talks about people traveling between the two places, Jesus changes the story and says, no, it's finished. There's no more traveling between the two places. What's done is done, and you've, you've decided which path you're going to take. Julie has a, a nice phrase, and that is, whatever your religion is, it should make you kinder. And if it doesn't make you kinder, there's something wrong with it. It's pretty simple, but I think that's pretty accurate. We should be changed in this world to bring kindness and love by what we believe. I like the fact that in the English tongue, the word doctrine and doctor come from the same root. And I think that's how we should view doctrine. It's supposed to be healing. It's supposed to bring health and vitality and comfort. That's how it should be be used. It should make us kinder. 
in this next couple of verses, Jesus takes a story and he probably makes it, I, having thought about this for the last couple of weeks, the most shocking story he ever tells. Because he says in verse um, 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let, them, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. That might not sound shocking to you now, but let me give you some background. The high priest at the time was called Caiaphas. He had a father-in-law, Annas, who was in the background, and he was kind of pulling the strings a little bit. So there's the high priest, and there's the kind of background high priest who was his father-in-law. Annas had five different sons, Eliezer, Jonathan, Theophilus, Matthias, and Annas the Younger. So when Jesus takes this person who's kind of, could be any high priest, in a rich living in richness and wearing purple clothes, and then says, this high priest happens to have five brothers. What he's saying to them in the context of this parable is your high priest is going to hell. That's how shocking this story is for the people at the time. That's how powerful his, that's the priority that Jesus put on all this. It's pretty stunning, isn't it? Abraham replied in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone came from the dead and went to them, then they would repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead. And then it becomes quite important to identify Lazarus as the Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. That's happened, he said, and still don't believe still your hearts are so turned to stone that nothing will change you and i don't think he's just talking about lazarus raising from the dead i think he's talking about himself that if we don't take the cross the crucifixion the death and resurrection of jesus and if that can't change us then there is nothing else there's nothing that's more powerful than that There are no clever words which you can come up with which will be more persuasive than the cross. That's where it is. I want to play you a little clip now. It's from a historian called Tom Holland. And because I think sometimes we, through our familiarity, lose some of the sense of the power of the cross. I know I do. And the point of of playing you this clip is because he's a secular historian, so it's not coming from a religious background. He's, in the, the start of the clip, he's been interviewed and he starts to talk about how he, st- he was raised in a Christian household, but that kind of faded away. But what he says about the cross is incredibly powerful. Help but move from here to uh, Rome versus the crucified in terms of Christianity. Yeah. yeah. How does Christianity fit into the story for you? Well, I, as I said, I was raised a Christian. Um, both my mother and my godmother were very crucial influences on me. I loved them deeply. I, I never had an issue with institutional religion. It was just that, that I, it kind of faded a bit. Um, and I, because of the dinosaurs, I'd always had a slight problem <laughs> with, with Adam and Eve. And I remember being in church and kind of, you know, whenever I, 
just kind of feeling bored and looking, skimming through the New Testament, trying to find any references to centurions or to um, the Whore of Babylon or you know anything that would devote Rome. Just finding Rome kind of more glamorous, really. So I was always on the side of Pontius Pilate because you know he was a Roman procurator. What's what's not to like? But of course now I, I realise that the crucifixion is the most the cross. What it represents is the most astonishing symbol humanity's ever really had and the fact that it's become the most probably the most single most recognizable cultural symbol in human history is staggering because it is an emblem of torture and death and suffering and i think that um we in the west are so desensitized to it that we've lost the sense that this was an emblem of roman power and the power that any governor had to impose death on those who stood up to Rome and that power was the power to burn, to throw to the beasts or to crucify and what happened with the crucifixion is that people discovered that weakness could become a source of strength and it was an epical discovery and it it, it changed the world and the world that we live in, in that sense is a deeply Christian one now, even so, I don't need to tell you as a, a, a man of the cloth yourself. But what ultimately separates us from the world of, of, of classical Greece and Rome, therefore, I think, essentially, is that is everything cross, that is summed up in the cross. Yeah, is it the strength in weakness that victory is more? Common yeah, but it's also it's it, it, that the first it, will be it's the also the strangeness of it, the the, the strangeness of the fact that. Um, People were, were, were able to believe seemingly, certainly by the time that Paul is writing, and that's a, a decade or so after the crucifixion is meant to have happened. When Paul writes about um, Jesus' crucifixion, he, again, he's taking it for granted. It's not something he has to explain. All his letters are written to explain stuff. He's endlessly explaining stuff, but that's not something he has to explain. Nor does he have to explain the fact that in, in some kind of undefined way as yet Jesus was in some sense part of the identity of the one creator God the God of Israel I found that really interesting I was listening to it that he's saying from a purely historical point of view there is a world before the crucifixion and there's a world after the crucifixion and the two are different it changed the world even those who don't believe now live in a world which has been changed by the crucifixion it's just from a historical objective perspective and actually as the interview goes on um, the interviewer teases out of Tom Holland the, the main speaker that it started to go back to church again that this kind of having gone through secular history and being an expert in the Roman Empire and all this kind of stiff stuff being on television written books about it his realization that the cross changed the world has kindled in him something which um, at the time of this interview was was growing that's the power of the cross better words than i can come up with are in 1 corinthians chapter 1 so we're going to read those together So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17 through to 31. Thanks, Dave. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. such powerful words of Paul there saying that the cross is everything everything else is commentary the essential message the one thing that he was going to carry with him throughout everything that he did was to tell people about the cross because the cross is where everything comes together whatever questions we might have about our faith whatever things we don't understand the cross is the focal point that's the essential message. My biggest argument with God is the suffering, this senseless suffering in the world and the pain. Don't get it. But when I look to the cross and I see that God would give his own son to be brutally tortured by people who'd made an art form of torture, who'd perfected it, that God would send his own son, not just any old son, but someone who is so perfect, so kind, so loving, so giving, even though I still have the questions, the power of the cross helps me with those. And I believe that love is the only way that the world can be changed. And when I look to the cross, I see just how deep love can go, how open it can be, how self-sacrificial it has to be. 
the power of the cross is unexplainable. It's undescribable. It's unimaginable. It has changed history. And that's why Jesus says in his story, if you don't believe the resurrection of man raised from the dead, there's really nothing. Your heart is so turned to stone that even the most powerful thing in the world can't change it. And I think that's why his story is so final. The chasm stops. There's nothing more for you. But let's take away the priorities of Jesus. He went, well, everything he went through was, yes, to save us in the kind of the, the big sense of salvation of the world, but it was also to change us, to be more loving, to be more kind, to use what power and authority we have in our lives to help people, to lift people up, to bring comfort and succor. And that's Jesus' priorities in telling that weird and wacky story. So we're going to take bread and drink wine in a moment. We're going to sing together two songs which focus us on the sacrifice. The first, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. <laughs> 